Hart, please stand for today's scripture reading. Our scripture lesson today comes from Psalm 111 and 112. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The work of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. The word of the Lord. Good morning. All right, I'm going to pray real quick before we dive in. Father, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you that it is true and it's given to us because you love us. Uh, we pray that as we dive in and we enter this place um, from different weeks and uh, with different questions, uh, that your spirit would be at work. We pray that this word would not fall on deaf ears, but that your spirit would be at work so that we might know the height and the depth and the breadth of your love. It's always into your name. Amen. Uh, so if you've been with us this summer, we've been going through a series on the book of Psalms, uh, and uh, this is kind of toward the conclusion of that series. So I think we have one or two more after this. But if you've been with us, you know uh, that the Psalms are actually the hymn book of Israel. And so what we've been doing is we've been taking a look at each song uh, because it's written for God's people to sing together and be shaped by God's word. And what we've seen is that they help shape us. They help shape our emotions. Last week we talked about um, uh, how they shape our ability to not be anxious. They help shape uh, our thankfulness. They help shape our hands and more. And today, as we take a look at our passage, we're going to see that this psalm was written to sing and shape our understanding of the story our understanding of the story. That is the story of God's work for us and the story that he has called his church to participate in uh, as the people of God. And if we're honest with ourselves, we talk about the idea of story and how this passage shapes it. We all long innately to be a part of a meaningful story, don't we? We long for this. We long to be a part of something we might say greater than ourselves. We long for our lives to meaningfully contribute to something don't we? We long for this. 
I think part of uh, our longing is illustrated uh, in the growth of ancestry tests in the last number of years, right? This rise in popularity is because we long to know how we got here. We long to know what our family story is, a family story that we've uh, been formed by, that we've inherited, and we might even be continuing. And our understanding of the work and lives of others helps shape our understanding of meaning and of ourselves. We know this because as we pass the peace and we meet new people, we might say something as we connect with other people like, tell me about yourself, which really what that means is tell me about your story. We are built to long to be a part of a story. I think about this in terms of one of my uh, silly obsessions is I love the show Shark Tank. Uh, it's just my like guilty pleasure unwind at the end of the day. And if you follow companies today, you see that every new company today has a cause that they're a part of. And I think the reason why is because we long to even purchase the ability to contribute to a story. We long to search for this meaning. And so the question begs itself as we take a look at this passage. What is the story that the church is a part of? And what uh, and how can my little story, my daily life, actually affect this big story? That's what this psalm is about. Because as I said earlier, we long for this. We were created to understand how God is at work and how he is calling us to participate in his work. And so what I want us to see really briefly today is that because God has redeemed his people, that's the big story. Our lives, that is the little stories, can actually contribute to his redemptive work. That's what I want us to see. But really quickly, in 30 seconds, I want to address the, uh, the elephant in the room. Why are we going through two psalms? Why are we going through two chapters, right? Well, without getting into the Hebrew structure and grammar, which I won't get into, uh, here's the point. Many scholars believe that these psalms were written to be sung together. We believe that these psalms were written to be sung together. Uh, one professor, Dr. Jack Collins, says that the psalms point to the goal of redemption, to renew the image of God in human beings. Psalm 111, in stressing God's mighty deeds of redemption for his people, focuses on the big story for the whole people. Whereas Psalm 112, in stressing wisdom, encourages each member of God's people in a day-to-day -day walk, a little story that contributes to the big story of the whole people. And so we're going through this because they're, be, they're written to be sung together. So we have just two points today. And the first is in Psalm 111, and that is this. We are part of a bigger story. We are part of the bigger story. And so if you would just uh, amuse me to participate with me, would you repeat with me? I am a part of God's big story. I'm going to do that one more time. I am a part of God's big story. So what we see in Psalm 111 is that it is a hymn of praise, and it's written to celebrate the great works the Lord has done for his people. And we see even in the passage that the context in which the people are giving thanks is in public worship. In verse 1, it says, in the company of the upright, in the congregation, this was written to be sung by God's people, uh, which is manifested today in the church. And so this song is to celebrate God's work and worship just like we are doing today. But the question is, why is it that they are giving thanks? Why do we give thanks? And what we see in this passage is that it's because of his works. We see that these works that are detailed here actually reveal things about God. In verse 3, we see that it reveals that God's righteousness endures forever. And this is important, because think about it for a second. Have you ever had someone in your life who ended up really hurting you? 
Maybe you trusted them at first. You thought that they were uh, a good person, whatever that means. Or maybe they change into someone that you no longer respect. Well, what we see in God's work, his steadfast, continual righteousness and display, is that his holiness endures forever. He does not sin, and we see over and over again that he continues to act righteously as he deals with his people. He has a track record, right? And so this is good news. We see in verse 4 that it reveals that God is gracious and merciful. And this is good news because it means that God is not simply holy, although that is good, but he is also loving. He loves us. He's both of these things. When I think about this, I think of, uh, if any of you have seen the new Thor movie, Thor Love and Thunder, uh, the first three minutes, there's this scene, uh, and the the kind of villain of the series, or would become that, um, he is this worshiper of this god, and he sets out on this journey. So he's uh, this faithful, devoted follower of this God, and he serves this God through suffering even the death of his daughter. And this scene in the very beginning of the movie is him coming before this God and asking him to help him, to be with him, to benefit him for his devotion. But what you see in this movie is that this God is actually an unrighteous jerk, because when it comes down to it, he doesn't really care about his people. Well, the Bible actually portrays for us a God who is the complete opposite of this. Not only is he holy, not only is he righteous, but he's also gracious and merciful. And he's gracious and merciful to his people even when we wander, even when we are not uh, as faithful as we should be. And so this is good news because God is not only holy, but he's gracious and he's merciful. In verse 6, we see that God is powerful. We see that God's works actually portrays that he acts, that we serve a God who is not silent, who actually is at work, who is not distant. And the primary way in which the people of God would understand this in this time period was that this is the God who freed his people from slavery at the hand of the Egyptians. This is a God who acted in history for the sake of his people. We see in verse 7 that his works display that God is faithful and just and trustworthy. We see that this is a God who does not rot his people. When we think about this, what is the sign of someone who is faithful and trustworthy in your life? It's probably something like they show up when they don't have a reason to, right? They show up. And what we see in the scripture as we look at God's work is that God showed up. God showed up in the garden after the people of God, Adam and Eve, actually sinned, and he said, where are you? God showed up in the family of Joseph after the egregious sin of his brothers in order that he might provide for them in famine. God showed up in Canaan through the woman Rahab after God's people had dismissed God's action and had not trusted him. And he did this to make good on his promise of the land and to use this faithful woman to bring about the line of Jesus. God showed up for Jonah to calm a storm after he ran from God. And he did this so that the people of Nineveh might know who God is. God is a God who is faithful and trustworthy. And we see that he, uh, he follows through with his promises uh, to redeem us. He's trustworthy. We see in verse 8 that these works reveal that God um, uh, is a God who um, is consistent. His works are established forever and ever. There's a permanence to what he does. See, God's work is finished and established forever. 
And because of this, what we see as the church is that the benefits of Christ cannot be taken away from him. God shows up. But what are his works? We see some things that they reveal about who he is, but what are they? What's uh, being talked about here? Well, the key is in verse 5 and in verse 9. We see in verse 9 that his works are the keeping of his covenant. And this is primarily displayed, as we see in verse 9, by sending redemption to his people. And so if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, God has related to his people uh, through a series of promises that are called covenants. And here's the point. The fulfillment of these covenants, the fulfillment of these promises are in Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of those things. And so the key is this. Jesus is the center of the big story. God and Jesus has offered to us redemption from our sin through the blood of Christ. We are the church not because we have similar personalities. We are the church not because we are perfectly moral. We are the church not because we have a similar socioeconomic status. We are the church not because we have similar political views or because of anything else. We are the church. We are called Christ's body because we are a part of the same big story. That is why we are the church. The story of a wandering and needy people saved by the blood of Christ and awaiting the renewal of all things. This is our story, and this is why we sing our story. This is why we give thanks to the Lord with our whole heart. And so if you're visiting with us today and you're exploring the faith and asking the question, what do these people believe? Being a Christian means first and foremost benefiting from this story. If you're searching, this is why we gather. And so the question I would uh, ask you to consider today is what would it be like to be a part of this story? To be freed from desperately trying to earn a sense of meaning in this world through our achievement, through our family or lack thereof, or through our good deeds, and instead being able to serve a God who has sought you and who offers to you grace and freedom in himself. This is the story and the reason why we gather. But you as the church might be asking the question, what does it mean for us to sing this story? This was written for us to sing, right? Well, it means that we actually have a privilege to be a part of this eternal song. This song that memorializes God's work. We praise God because we as the people of God have benefited from this story. We've benefited from this story. And it means that this should be the story that bonds us. Not other stories primarily. There's this tradition in the church that I think is beautiful. If we ever get a building, I think we should uh, continue it. But that's just my thing. Uh, And it's painting the church um, door red. And the reason why churches did this historically was to symbolize that we don't enter into the church according to what we wear or according to what we bring, but we enter and are bonded by the fact that we enter through the blood of the Lamb. That is why we enter the church. And so what we see is that God gives us the big story of his son. And so you repeat with me again, I am a part of God's big story. But you might be asking yourself, how is it that we live in light of this story? That's great, I'm I'm glad I'm a part of it, but what do I do about it? You might be very practical about this. Well, at the end of Psalm 111, there's an ending that helps us with why these songs are sung together. The passage says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good good understanding. In short, God's work leads to a faithful response by his people. God actually delights to use his people for his work. He treats us as agents. 
He doesn't have to do this. But he actually created us to be helpers, to contribute. And so our second point, as we see in Psalm 112, is that God actually uses our little stories to contribute to his big story. And so would you repeat with me here? God uses my life for his work. Do that one more time. God uses my life for his work. See, as we said, the first hymn in Psalm 111 is a hymn of praise. And the hymn of praise leads to a hymn of wisdom in Psalm 112. And what we see is that this psalm focuses on the moral character of the faithful and on the benefits such people bring to themselves and to others. And so first, we see that being a part of the big story is actually a blessing for us. We see that those who live wisely in response to God's work, as we see in verse 2, are actually blessed. We see in verse 3 that wealth, is, wealth and riches are in their house. And I want to uh, focus down on this for a second. This can be confusing. The point is not that your financial circumstances are related to your obedience to God. As we know, obedience to God often involves taking up a cross. Jesus is even honest with us that sometimes it may, be leaving, it may mean leaving behind our uh, earthly possessions. There's a cost. But rather, we see both that God often delights to provide for his people and, as noted in the line directly following this, where it says the abundance of their riches lies in their righteousness. See, because God's righteousness endures forever, as we saw in Psalm 111, now in Psalm 112, the one who follows God benefits so that their righteousness endures forever. The point is that if you are in Christ, the abundance of your riches and your wealth is that uh, Christ's righteousness is actually accounted to you. You don't have to prove yourself. It's been given to you. So when God looks at you, he sees his son. And we also see that part of the benefits is in, is in verse 7. They are not afraid of bad news. Wouldn't that be great to not be afraid of bad news? Have you had this ever lied in bed just fearing what would happen the next day? Maybe you've had that moment in your life where that's been particularly acute. You're fearing the bad news of a diagnosis, a firing, a broken relationship. It's awful. And yet what we see is that the one who follows God, his heart, in verse 8, is steady. And this, of course, does not mean that following uh, Jesus means that we're never afraid or that bad news can't make us sad or even angry. But what we see in the second part of verse 8 is that the steadiness and confidence in the face of bad news comes from the surety of knowing God's triumph. Verse 8 does not say unless he triumphs or if he triumphs, but until he triumphs. And the point is that if you are in Christ, you can be sure that no bad news ever has the final word. No bad news ever has the final word. And so we see displayed for us in this song the benefits of being a part of the family of God. But we also see, secondly, that these benefits are not only for ourselves, but actually being shaped by God helps us bless others. There's benefits for others. See, what we see is that these small and seemingly insignificant lives of faithfulness benefit not just God's people, but the world. We see that God's work has changed those who sing this song in such a way that they begin to act like him, though very imperfectly. And this is the key to wisdom, a heart changed by God's grace. When the church does this, we are actually living in light of the covenant. As God says to Abraham, we have been blessed to be a blessing. And so what we see is that others benefit. 
Let me help you uh, see what I mean. In verse 4, we see that because God is gracious, merciful, and righteous, God's people are led in verse 4 to act graciously, mercifully, and righteously. We know this even in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 15, every seven years, the people of God are commanded to cancel debts. And the reason for this uh, grace and mercy was because Deuteronomy 15 says the people were to, quote, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why God gave this command. And so, Resprez, what would it be like to be a place of grace and mercy? How do we welcome the visitor in our midst? How do we display the grace and mercy of Christ? And how might we be a blessing to Madison and our communities if we did so? We also see in verse 5, because God is generous, God's people in verse 5 should be led to deal generously with others in need. Uh, When I think about this, I think about uh, how there's a student who I've been meeting with the last year who uh, started to want to learn more about the Bible uh, because she said that someone helped her move who was a Christian. The generosity of another person actually led her to ask the question, what is it that these people believe? I want some of that. And I think I'm encouraged by the ways in which we do this. And so how can we as a church continue to be generous? I think moving is a good example. Uh, I, me, me and Ray moved here a year ago, and uh, we have benefited from your generosity. So I'm very thankful for that. Uh, but one thing we see in this passage is that the generosity of Christ uh, is actually um, something that leads us to be generous, and that's a blessing to others. We see that because God is just in verse 5, God's people in verse 5 should be led to conduct their affairs with justice. When I think about this, I think about this story of a used car salesman. Uh, You guys uh, know all the stereotypes behind that, right? If you're a used car salesman, uh, you're probably not thought of very highly. uh, And there's probably some good reasons for that historically. Uh, But there's this story uh, of this this man who became a Christian, and he was uh, sharing Uh, about how his uh, faith in Jesus informed his work. And here's his story. He noticed that as a used car salesman, there was um, an unequal um, uh, display of kindness towards women. And the way in which he noticed that is that if you look at the stats, cars are sold at a statistically higher rate to women, a higher price uh, than they are to men. There's a number of reasons for that. But he decided that because he wanted to be someone who, led by the work of Jesus, conducted his affairs with justice, he was going to stop creating negotiable prices and create fixed prices. And so he changed his business model. And for him, that was a lot. That was uh, influenced by Jesus's uh, justice. And so we see uh, that the work of Christ actually helps us uh, be a better blessing. And so how do we as a community pursue justice? How do we pursue justice in our city, but also how do we pursue justice in our work? How do we pursue justice in our families? How do we pursue justice in our lives? And how might we be a blessing as Christ is a blessing to us? We see in verse 9 that because we understand ourselves as those who are poor in spirit, as those who are incapable of earning our salvation, yet Christ has purchased us purchased it at a cost to himself and given it freely because God's because of God's redemptive work we see that God's people should be led to give to the poor in verse 9 and so how are we reaching out to those in need in Madison 
How can we be a blessing to our community? What we see in this passage in Psalm 112 is that God has called his people not just to be a part of the story and to benefit from it, but to participate in it. We don't do these things perfectly. And if we're honest, sometimes God works despite the church. But God uses his people to do his work. And I think one thing I want to just acknowledge is that we tend to think of a church, if you've grown up in the church, our participation in God's work only as our direct evangelism, where we open the Bible with someone. Our participation in God's work is not less than that. We need to be a people who share what God has done, because as we said in the first point, Jesus is the key. He's why we gather. And what we also see is that all of our lives contribute to God's work in our daily faithfulness as parents, as spouses, as friends, as employees, as bosses, as neighbors, as citizens, and more. We help, uh, God uses my life for his work. And so let's return back to the original question real quick as we do to close. How can my little story affect the big story? Uh, Dr. Collins uh, is helpful here. He says, wisdom is not over and against covenant. And therefore, the daily and small-scale focus of Psalm 112 is not over and against the big picture of the Lord's great deeds of redemption on Psalm 111. What we see is that your works and lives of faithfulness matter. What we see is that your labor is not in vain. When I think about this, I think of this uh, short story you've probably heard. Uh, It's called Leaf by Niggle. Uh, It's a Tolkien short story. And this is what happens. This character... Uh, in the story is an artist. And he has this beautiful picture in his, mi- uh, in his mind of this, this extravagant tree, this beautiful display that he has in his mind. And so he spends his whole life trying to bring to the page this image that he sees. But what he finds at the end of his life is that all he's been able to paint is a leaf. And he's distraught. And he, uh, after dying, enters this heavenly place And he sees this beautiful tree in front of him, the one in which he had been imagining for years. And he's overcome by sadness that he wasn't able to put that on a page. But then as he walks closer, he sees his leaf, his leaf that he painted and contributed toward. If we're honest, I think that much of our lives, even the meaningful things which God in his grace allows us to contribute to, feel like a leaf. We feel that we want the big picture, and yet it's frustrating sometimes because our small acts of faithfulness sometimes feel maybe meaningless. And yet what I hope that Psalm 112 can encourage us today is that your faithfulness matters and that your labor is not in vain. God uses his people for his work. And so once again, if you're here with us visiting and asking the question, what is a life well lived? I want to just say that we need Jesus in Psalm 111 to even get to Psalm 112. We don't do this on our own, but out of a response to his work. And so the first step is to come to him, know him, and become a part of the big story. But for the church, I want us to see that we sing this song to live in response. It does not do big things Uh, to earn meaning, but responds in small and faithful ways to God's big story. We sing a song 112 to remember how God works in and through us. We sing to remember that your labor is not in vain. 
We sing it to repent for the ways in which we are not living in wisdom and to pray that the Spirit help us become a community that is more generous, more gracious, more merciful, and more faithful. We sing it when we are weary of others' success and our challenges following Jesus to remember in verse 10 as it tells us that ultimately the, the desires of the wicked will perish, and yet God's steadfast love remains. And so as we really quickly conclude, how does singing this so these songs together shape us? How does Psalm 111 and 112 shape us? Well, just four ways, which we've already noted. First, we sing these songs to rejoice what bonds the people of God to one another, that we are a part of the same big story, the story of God keeping his covenant in Jesus. This is why we gather. Second, we sing these songs to remember who God is and how he acted when we are weary, when we are doubting, and when we are lonely. And we do this corporately as a church so that we might be encouraged by the faith of one another. Thirdly, we sing these songs to become more like Jesus so that our small acts of faithfulness might be a blessing to others. And finally, we sing these songs to remember that your labor is not in vain and that God delights to use his people to contribute to his work. So this is why we sing. Let's pray real quick that God would help us. God, we are thankful for your big story. Thank you that you came in Jesus and died on a cross so that we might have life. We're thankful that you use our little stories. Thank you that you delight to use your people to do your will. We pray that you would help us. As we approach this table, would you encourage us through uh, the wine and bread, Lord, that you have uh, displayed your love for us in this, that while we are still sinners, you died for us. We thank you that your work is finished and that you offer it to us. And God, we also pray that you would strengthen and encourage us. Give us bread for the journey as we seek to follow you and be a blessing. All these things in your name. Amen.